Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Parramatta Baptist Church. Congratulations on getting the time right. Congratulations on choosing not to take that extra hour in bed, even though everything within you wanted to do so. It's lovely to have you here this morning. We have a number of visitors. Welcome. It's great to have you here, and you're tapping in on the very last week of our series in Ecclesiastes, so I hope you enjoy that, and I'll give you a little bit of a catch-up along the way. And it's lovely to have Brendan and Lynn back as well after eight weeks, six weeks. It's felt like six months, I'll tell you. So thank you. Thank you for the gifts from... Switzerland, best thing that comes out of Switzerland is chocolate. My goodness. If the pastoral team look like they're putting on weight, it's true. Like I said, we are in the final aspects of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes deals with the big questions in life, and I thought I'd start with one of the biggest questions that can be faced before us, and that is, are you a dog person or a cat person? So I want you to just find someone near you. Do you prefer cats or dogs? And I want a reason why, okay? Cats or dogs, reason why? You got about a minute, two minutes. All right. Look, I don't even know if I want to do a straw poll, but I, no, I think I do. Who prefers cats? Oh, wow, about four of you. Who prefers dogs? Oh. Who prefers having neither cats nor dogs? All right, I'm into that. Who wants both? Okay, that's where I'm about to go. It does go somewhere, that. I, I grew up through my teenage years and as a young adult, I grew up in Golston, which is in the northwest. Mum and Dad bought a, just a couple of acres out there and uh, my mum has always been a dog and cat person, so just loves animals. And so we had a couple of hectares and so on these couple of hectares came everything. So there were dogs, there were cats, there were chickens, there were bantams, there were budgies, finches, parrots of various kinds. There were horses and a goat and there were probably real horses, ponies, miniature horses, everything in between. So I, my teenage years and young adult years were filled with animals. But that was quite common out in Golston and uh, when it came to dogs, I, I kind of developed this, they didn't become my favourite animal and I've been bitten probably at least six to eight times. Because Golston was semi-feral back when I grew up there in the 80s, and I mean that. Everyone had a dog, and about half the people kept them tied up or behind fences, and the other half didn't bother. Now, when I was 14, 15, I had to make my way often from Golston uh, through to Hornsby or a Brower, and, and uh, I couldn't drive, unfortunately. I had a car at 16, but I wasn't allowed to drive it. Bad luck about that. So I used to ride. I used to ride my bike a lot, and there was this dog, mm. and it was not fence, and I don't know how the dog... I knew where the dog was. I don't know how the dog knew I was coming. Uh, it was kind of at the base of the hill, and so what I would do is I'd get up as much pace as I could. I'd fly down the hill because I knew this dog would be waiting for me, and sure enough, every time I went past this house, the dog had come out chasing me. Most of Sometimes I could get away from the dog, sometimes the dog would get me. Uh, I do remember at some stages actually riding with one foot and using the other to kick the dog off. Uh, so I think two or three of my dog attacks are attributable to that dog alone. Anyway, when I was 17, I got my licence on my 17th birthday, hopped in my car and I thought, well, ha, <laughs> bet you can't touch me now, dog. Anyway, I'm driving past the house, guess what the dog does? It chases my flipping car! <laughs> And I just remember driving past this house and this dog, this, and I could see him in the rear vision mirror still chasing me like, raw, 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 whatever. And I'm thinking, what are you going to do with me if you catch me? Are you going to bury me or what? Are you going to try and bury my car? There's this sense of, what the heck do you think you are doing, dog? And there's a sense of that in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's like, what are you doing? 
What are you doing that actually has any value, any purpose? What are you going to have to show for it at the end of life? And this is where this this week's passage goes. I want to take you back to the very beginning because in in chapter 1, verse 3, there's the question that Koaleth, the teacher, is seeking to answer. Uh, And it's simply this, what do people gain from all their labours? And he's not just talking about work, he's talking about all of life, all of our labour, at which they toil under the sun. What do people gain? And this Hebrew word gain is only ever used in Ecclesiastes. You will not find it anywhere else in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is yitron. And it has this sense of what is left over. What is left over from your life? When all is said and done, with everything that you've done in your life, what will be left over? What will be your advantage? What will be your gain or your reward? And you may, uh, if you've been here over the last few weeks, know that he's made a number of observations. And there are two observations that the teacher comes back to over and over through the book of Ecclesiastes. The first one is that life is meaningless. Hebel. It's like a vapour, it's, it's a vanity, it's, it's insubstantial. He comes to this observation that because of, of death, life is meaningless. Because of the injustice, life is meaningless. And so when we come to this question of what do people gain, he's very, very clear in saying that one of the things we don't gain is anything from the material possessions that we gain. So much of us invest so much of our life into accumulating wealth or houses or multiple houses. Whatever it is we seek to accumulate, uh, the, the teacher says, well, you actually don't gain from that because death will rob you of everything. You understand that, right? You take nothing with you. And even if you do accumulate and before you get to death, injustice and just the unfairness of life can rob you, rob you of what you have accumulated. And so the first thing that he, that he comes through saying is that life is meaningless, But the second thing that comes through over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes, does anybody know? Have you been listening over the last five weeks? What is it? Oh, you know. I know you know. You're just all too shy. Enjoy life. Enjoy life. See, life is a gift from God. Enjoy life. And so we come toward the end of the book. In fact, we will finish it off today. And there are two things. He he gives a kind of answer to this question of uh, what do we gain? Where, where is the, wit, the yitron, the advantage that we find in life? And he comes up with two things in these final verses. And I, I, I'm going to give them to you in advance because actually as Bev reads the passage, I actually want you to listen for them because it's a beautiful passage. It's so poetic and it uses lots of metaphors and imagery, a lot of imagery. And sometimes you can be so caught up in the imagery that you actually miss the message. What he proposes is that, that the gain in life is found in two things. The first is the enjoyment of life. That one of the things that we gain from life and the advantage we have is actually the enjoyment, the joy that we find in it. That life is a gift to be enjoyed. And the second gain that he talks about that we find in life is actually our relationship with God. He talks three times, you will hear in this passage, the word remember. So remember, then remember him and remember him. And each time the word remember is used, it's like the beginning of a new section that makes the same point. Remember God. And this word remember is not a passive word. You don't just sit in your lounge chair and remember. Oh, I remember that. Or, I rem-, you know, it's actually an active word. It's dynamic. And it's the sense of when you remember God that we then act and we live in sync with that, that memory of who God is. Remember who God is, remember what he's done. And when we do that, that is wisdom. When we remember and act in the knowledge of who God is and what he has done, that 
is wisdom. And so, Bev, do you want to come up? And she's going to read to you this passage, which, like I said, is, it is stunning. It is so filled with imagery. It's chapter 11, starting at verse 7 and going through chapter 12, verse 8. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all, but let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. Be happy, young man, while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart, and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigour are meaningless. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the streets are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms, And the grasshopper drags himself along, and desire no longer is stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home, and mourners go out about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed, or the golden bowl is broken, before the picture is shattered at the spring, or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Thank you. Beautifully read. I didn't hear any amens in that when, you know, it was like youthful vigour is meaningless, you know. Surely some of you could have had some, yeah, anyway. The teacher addresses youth because there is a sense, you know, and if... I don't know where you want to put the youth level. Is it under 50, under 60, under 40? Under... It depends on your age, right? We were commenting on this the other day. I'm 53, and another mate of mine's about to turn 50, and he said, like, you know, do you remember being in your young 20s, and you meet someone who's 50, and you kind of go, oh, you poor thing, you must be so close. You know, like, you know, it's... it's, it's... Anyway, this passage is addressed to youth because there is a sense in which youth have the most life to live but they have the least lived life experience to do that living. And so there's wisdom being spoken into it. And and as it comes to the end, it's almost like he's pleading with the young people, can you get this? Can you understand this? Because we tend to learn wisdom the, the hard way, and that is by our own mistakes. And the teacher is speaking to young people, saying, live this out now. Live it while you're young to make the most out of your life. Live it. There's the imagery in there. So the, the imagery comes in different patterns, and the remember sets those three different aspects of it. The first image that you may see, and he starts with this, this image of light. Light is sweet. It pleases the eyes. And so we have this contrast between light and darkness. And the teacher talks about the darkness to come. 
there's this aspect of the imagery of light and darkness being used to talk about life and death. Uh, and the point that is made in these, these introductory verses is not that death spoils life. Koalith, the teacher, never actually says that. He doesn't say, he talks about death making what we achieve and trying to do in life meaningless, but he never says that death spoils life. Life is still to be enjoyed. Uh, but what he does say is remember that death is coming. Not to spoil your life, but so that your life would be put in perspective, to actually make the most of the days that you have on this earth. Remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. There's this invitation to let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. We tend to think of the heart as the centre of our emotions. The Hebrew word is leb. It's more located down in the bowels of your body. Uh, And it actually talks about the essence of who you are. It, it is your will, it's your feelings, it's, it's all who you are. Uh, and so what Koaleth invites us to do, invites particularly young people to do, seek the joy with, with the essence of who you are. Seek to enjoy life and follow the ways, follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But again, there's this little but that comes on the end of it. So seek enjoyment in life, but never do so with an aspect of hedonism. Uh, the teacher, again, throughout Ecclesiastes, he never, he, he never says, look, just go out and pursue fun. Whatever you do, just go and seek pleasure because that is meaningless. What he's saying is find joy, but do so in the knowledge of God. There are ways to actually enjoy life that please God. There are ways to actually find joy in life that please him. Uh, and so there's this encouragement to do that. So remember that there is a God and he will hold you accountable for your choices. And there's an interesting aspect. In, as you read Ecclesiastes, there's this question of, does the teacher have any concept of an afterlife, an eternal life? Uh, does he have a knowledge that there is a life beyond? And there are just different times where he hints that he thinks there is, but he doesn't know what it is. There's this aspect of, of ignorance, this, this knowledge that has been withheld from the teacher at this time in, in history as to what eternal life may look like. But he still holds out the hope that there will be that. In chapter 12, we enter into the, the next of the images. And this time, it's an image of a house. And it's either a house that's been left in decline or going into decline, or it's a house that is suffering in the midst of a storm. It's being battered from the outside. We're not quite sure which one it is. But again, chapter 12 starts with that. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you say, I find no pleasure in them. And there's this beautiful series of images of this house in decline. And people have spent hundreds of years trying to actually talk about what it is. Is is the house representing a human body and the decline of a human body? Most likely it is. And there's just a lot of fun in here. I I don't know whether he laughed as he wrote this, whether he smiled, how he approached it. He talks about when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop. Like there is this sense of as we age, this this is a description of us ageing, we begin to shake a little bit more than we did. Uh, We become a little bit shorter than we used to as we begin to stoop talks about the grinders cease because they are few. You're starting to lose your teeth. <laughs> yeah, you're looking, looking through the windows grows dim. What do you think that would be? Yeah, yeah. You, a lot of you wearing glasses <laughs> when your eyes grow dim. Uh, when the stores to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, this is actually an aspect, and there's a bit of sadness to this. There's a sense in which the house is now closed up. 
I don't know if you've watched that ABC show about, what's it called, uh, Preschool for 80-Year-Olds or something like that. Beautiful, beautiful. But there's this intense sadness, isn't there, in some of the stories where people feel like they're no longer of use, that there's nothing they can do, that they're past their use-by date. And just the depression, the sadness, and, and there's this image here that the house is now closed up. It's no longer being used. It's no longer inhabitable. And whatever activity was going on, the grinding of the, of, of, of the wheat or whatever, that's no longer being heard. There's a sense of, of uselessness. When people rise at the sound of birds, I don't know, does anybody find they're waking earlier? My dad wakes at 3.30. Like, why? He doesn't know why. You all woke a little earlier today, didn't you? Uh, I love this one. Uh, when the almond tree blossoms. Any ideas what that could be? Oh, a few of you are patting your grey hairs, aren't you? Yeah. Uh, most likely it is. It's just this description of, our, of, of the, you know, the, the almond tree um, blossoms white and there's this aspect of it. Uh, it could also, the almond tree also blossoms in winter uh, and so it could also be talking about the onset of winter in life, just this leading towards decline and eventually death. It's all quite depressing, isn't it, the book of Ecclesiastes? The almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along. That's a terrible expression, isn't it? I haven't seen too many of you dragging yourself along. And desire is no longer stirred. We won't talk about that because there's children here. But then it, uh, the teacher goes into it. Then people go to their eternal home. And again, there's just this glimpse, glimpse perhaps of an afterlife. And the mourners go about the street. So there's decline into death. And then he does the same thing again, but with different imagery. And a little bit shorter this time. Uh, so in verse 6, remember him. And this time the teacher uses four objects that are either of value or of purpose. Uh, and so he talks about the silver cord being cut, being broken, uh, the golden bowl bring, being broken as well. So these are two things that would be of great value, and their value is now diminished. Again, just this sadness of, of life as he observes it, that, that, that the value attributed to, to people as they age diminishes. Uh, and then there were two things that are of great purpose, and that is the pitcher and the wheel, and these are broken. And again, there's this sense of no longer being fit for purpose. And then in verse 7, when verse 7 read out, did it remind you of another passage in the Bible? Possibly from Genesis, when it talked about how God takes the dust of the earth and from the dust of the earth forms man and he breathes his spirit into the man. And so again, there's this reversal as it speaks about death. The dust goes back to dust and the spirit goes back to God. And again, just that glimpse of an afterlife. And of course he has to finish his writings with meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. It's a beautifully written passage and it's a beautiful way for the book to finish because it calls us back to that question, what is there to gain from life? What advantage are we left with in life? And for the teacher... It's these two things. The gain is found in the enjoyment of life, of actually finding joy, God-honouring joy in life. Never, ever think that Christianity is opposed to the enjoyment of life because sometimes you get that impression, don't you, that, that sometimes people look at us and go, ah, Christians, all they want to do is rob the world of fun. And then, on the other hand, we get accused if we enjoy ourselves because then we get called happy clappies, right? So we, we can't win either way. But the, the reality of life, 
The gain of life that Carlos speaks about is to find enjoyment in it, to find ways that honour God, that honour him, but also honour the world in which we live. There's this sense in which we find joy in our relationships with those around us. And the second thing is to remember. Enjoy life, but then have this active memory, this knowledge of who God is and what he has done and what he will do. Some of you will know that, actually no, the, the, the book does not end with meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless, because there is an editor to the book of Ecclesiastes, and the editor starts off in chapter one and just says, these are the words of, and then he finishes with this little, well, editorial comment in some ways. Firstly, the editor commends the teacher, which is an important thing to do, because the book of Ecclesiastes is so contrary to so much of the other wisdom literature, literature in the Bible. So there's commendation that the teacher was wise and he imparted knowledge to the people. What he wrote was upright and true. But then there's a little phrase it's at the end of the book, and this is the editor's words, not the teacher's words, but they're still the words of God. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. I read that, and perhaps you may feel the same way when I say it, is it feels like the editor has wanted to leave us with something that we can walk away with. And what he says is not contrary in any way to what the teacher has said, but it's a little bit neater. It kind of fits more into the traditional wisdom literature. But there's this sense in which we do, we walk away with this. Now all has been heard and here is the conclusion, fear God and keep his commandments. I think Coaleth goes a little bit further than that and talks about enjoying life as well as just fearing, remembering him. But there is again just this aspect of judgment of a life that we will be held accountable for. But what I want to say with this conclusion is where the editor says, here is the conclusion of the matter, I want to disagree. Because from the book of Ecclesiastes onwards, we actually have a further revelation of God. And particularly we have the further revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Ecclesiastes is not the end of the story. And the book of Ecclesiastes is not the conclusion of the matter because we have one called Jesus Christ who comes and he speaks into the same issues, the same questions, and particularly this question of what do we gain from life? And Jesus speaks into this. And the imagery is much the same. This is not the conclusion of the matter. Uh, the teacher's observations expressed a hope in something beyond death. He couldn't put his finger on it. He couldn't describe it. He didn't quite know what it would look like, but he expresses this hope. For him, the gain in life was the enjoyment of life and it was limited to enjoying life and living in the wisdom that comes from the knowledge of God. But the teacher could see nothing beyond that. And for us, it's only part of the story because the coming of Christ throws so much more light on gain. And the life and the death and the resurrections shines light on what lies beyond the grave. And so when we jump to John chapter 1, Verses 1 to 5, again, just strong imagery about light and darkness. But this time, more of the picture is revealed to us. Again, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
When John begins his Gospels, he speaks into this question of life. In John 10, uh, verse 10, uh, a really well-known passage, uh, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. There's a sense in which Jesus speaks into the message, into the conclusions of Coleth and says, no, this is not the end of the matter. This is not the end of the story. And he calls for us to gain life and to find life in him, a life that even death cannot overcome. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 picks this up. And Paul writes this. I want to use passages that actually pick up on this aspect of gain. But whatever gains to me, I now consider. Uh, but whatever were gains, I lost an hour of sleep. Come on. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. There are three things that Paul talks about that we gain. What gain do we have in life? What can we gain in life? Firstly, our gain is Christ himself. We are brought into him. He is in us. We are in Christ. Our gain is Christ. And this is how Paul describes it, that whatever I have, whatever I have thought that I have gained in life, the thing that I, the person that I have, the wonder that I have gained more than anything else in all of life is Christ himself. The second thing that Paul talks about here is that our gain is righteousness. We gain a righteousness in this life. And so it's not about adherence to a set of rules. It's actually about trusting and obeying and actually finding faith in a person and living out a life of obedience and wisdom because of our faith in that person. We gain a righteousness, not of our own, but we gain the righteousness of Christ. His death on the cross giving us a righteousness that we never deserved. And his death on the cross and his resurrection giving us a new identity as sons and daughters of God. Not earned through an adherence to the law, but given to us through his Holy Spirit as we accept Christ in faith. Our gain is Christ himself. Our gain is a righteousness that we never deserved and never earned. And thirdly, our gain is eternal life a resurrection into eternal life. And we know this to be true because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul speaks about how he has this hope, not just a, I'm not quite sure, maybe there's an afterlife, I'm not quite sure what it could, he has this this strong and certain hope based on the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that there is more to this life than this life, that this life is actually leading into a life eternal, that we are resurrected into an eternal life with Christ, raised with him. What is our gain in life? Our gain is Christ. Our gain is his righteousness, and our gain is eternal life, resurrection to eternal life. I would love to say that Ecclesiastes, because I believe this to be true, and I've spoken in this in the past weeks, Ecclesiastes is a book that calls us to trust. 
It is a book that calls us to trust God in the complexity of life. Life is no less complex in our life as it was back then because of Christ. It is still complex. We still find life hard at times, and at times life feels meaningless. But the book of Ecclesiastes all the way through has been a call to trust God in the good times as well as in the difficult times, to trust him, to have faith in him. And the book of Ecclesiastes, in a sense, sets us up to trust in one called Jesus Christ. It calls us to faith in Christ. It calls us to have faith in the one who can see beyond because he has been beyond death itself and the one who gives us life and whom we find all of our gain in. Matthew chapter 16. And I just want to finish this series with Jesus' words to us. Matthew 16 in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Ecclesiastes calls us to faith in God. And Jesus Christ has stepped into our world and he calls us to faith in him, to trust him in the complexity, all of the complexity of life. Allow me to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which it speaks over hundreds, over thousands of years with clarity and just wisdom into us. Father, as we come to the conclusion of the matter, We do want to live life in a way that finds enjoyment, to actually treat life as a gift from you, and to do so in a way that remembers who you are and all that you've done and who you are calling us to be, to live in a way that honours you. But Father, we also thank you as we've been reminded this morning, as we've shared in the bread and and the cup, Lord, we thank you also that you have come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And what was only seen dimly by the writer of Ecclesiastes finds clarity in the person of Jesus Christ, that in him we find life, in him we find our advantage, our gain, in him we find righteousness, and in him we receive the hope of a resurrection to eternal life. But Father, our desire is the same, to live life to the full, to enjoy all that this life has to give us, and to do so in a way that brings you glory and honour. May our lives reflect the beauty of your love and your grace. And may our witness be to your love and your grace to all people. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Saviour. Amen.